Kim Duke, and I am married to an addict. Uh, this is, I guess, our second podcast, video podcast, vodcast. I don't know what they call them. Um, and we're going to kind of go back in time. Um, and so you guys may get to know us on levels that you didn't think you were going to get to know us. Um, some risk factors for developing an addiction. Um, you know, past trauma, emotional, physical abuse, um, obviously genetics. Um, I mean, there's a list of different things. And I'm going to kind of go into some things I've gone through through my life and into where I am today. Um, so here we go. Uh, I guess one big first event that I can recall uh, was in third grade. Um, so what I was eight years old and it's hard because after you have children and they get to those ages you think of how young you were when that happened to you but when I was in third grade my very good friend at the time um molested me um and I didn't really quite understand what was going on and I did tell my parents about it and you know you don't think a whole lot about it when it happens then we obviously didn't really hang out after that anymore but you know you go on throughout your life with that person still in class with you and you just kind of got to deal with it and then probably a year after that my um, parents had some issues happen I'm not going to go into specifics about that um, but they were going to get divorced and I learned a lot of things that in fourth grade, you should probably not know about your parents. Um, and then my mom ended up getting hospitalized. She got, she had some type of accident happen and she was hospitalized and it was very traumatic seeing your mom in the hospital. And there were times where we weren't sure she was going to make it. She had some, um, broken ribs, a punctured lung. And that was very scary. And my parents ended up, um, working things out and staying together, um, during that time. Uh, but I do remember it being, I mean, I can vividly remember seeing my mom in the hospital. I can still like, it's so weird when you go through types of traumas, you can still smell things. And granted I work in the hospital now, but back then, like growing up, I could still smell the hospital, you know, after experience, my mom being there. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> I'm going to say this is trauma, but you know, fifth grade, I was bullied pretty bad. I was heavy set. I've always had thick thighs and a big butt. And back in the day, that wasn't cool. Now it is. Um, and I had boys that made fun of me and, you know, that stuck with me for a while. And then during that summer, you know, I got obsessed with, I stopped really eating and I believe, you know, I had some type of eating disorder where I wouldn't eat as much. And I, I mean, I lost some weight over the summer. And then we come into, uh, you know, sixth grade. I, yeah, I don't really remember a whole lot. But then when I went into my adolescence, I was raped. And I didn't really talk about it after it happened. I wasn't very open about it. My mom kind of noticed that I was different. I was taking multiple showers a day, mom, like three showers a day. And my mom and me were always very, very, very close. And she kind of just straight up asked me if that had happened. And I, you know, was honest with her. And I think when, you know, especially, you know, being younger in third grade, having that situation happen and now another situation happened, 
I had developed my self-esteem was gone I had none at all and I had a lot of emotional issues um and a lot of budding hands with my dad and my dad is I will say he's a great man um and our relationship has grown a lot since I was an adolescent but our relationship was very very poor growing up um I I mean a lot of negative comments about my weight and I do remember I was going through some stuff and he I heard him tell my mom like I'm done with her she's your child you I can't do this anymore kind of a thing because I was difficult but I also experienced a lot of things that kids shouldn't experience and I didn't feel that support from him um and it was hard feeling like your you know father figure didn't really want to take care you know he didn't want to be a part of your life it was he was very focused on how I was doing in school and what I wanted to be when I get older you know emotional wise he was not connected emotionally to me which was really hard um and that's when I developed a very close relationship with my mom um so not having a father figure in my life kind of caused some issues where I would try and replace that with males and you know I would get in relationships really quick fall in love really quick not maybe fall in love real quick but the relationships and I felt like I needed to constantly get this like a set of, sort of attention from a male figure to replace what I wasn't getting at home and I know that now as an adult obviously when you're an adolescent you don't realize that's what you're doing and then I did struggle a lot from depression, major depression, anxiety, um, multiple overdoses. Some people didn't even know about. Um, one, I was hospitalized once, which I don't talk a lot about because, and maybe I've talked about it on our podcast previously, but working in mental health yourself, I don't know if I feel like I'm a liar because I've been hospitalized and now I'm working with people who are being hospitalized. Um, but I was hospitalized and my mom was the only one that came to visit me. Granted, my brothers were younger, but my dad didn't. And I remember coming home after I was hospitalized and, you know, I thought my dad would be like, okay, now I know you've been struggling. You know, you have these things that you play in your head. Like maybe my dad will finally notice, like I've been really struggling with things that have happened in my life. And you know, the first thing he said to me was, did you learn your lesson? And that has really stuck with me for a really long time. Even now, you know, I, and I think, yeah, I, and I mean, I would hate to say that was the last time I, my mental health was bad, but, you know, later on I took, I overhead a pretty severe overdose and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my, you know, my, I think I don't know if my mom knew, we don't really talk about it. Um, but my friends kind of caught wind and I did go to the ER, had to be treated for that. And, you know, that was, you know, pretty traumatic there too. I wasn't hospitalized after that. And I did see therapists for a while and, you know, I had one therapist tell me that, you know, she told 
my mom, like, you know, she's hanging on a string and I'm surprised she's still here. Like, well, why is she still alive after all the stuff she's gone through, you know, with, you know, my dad, my past, my, you know, sexual assaults, stuff like that. And obviously, and then my mom sent me to a new therapist and I, me and him didn't get along. And I just kind of learned to cope with things. And I, I think at that time, you know, I started my big escape with coping with those kind of things, especially in my adolescence and lots of heartbreak, lots of heartbreak and, um, trauma and all that was, I really escaped into music, um, my big thing was music helped me through a lot. You know, I'm all about therapists because they helped me later on in life. But listening to music was my big escape. I listened to a lot of um, emo music. I'm gonna be, and I still listen to the same music now. But um, the used was a big one that got me through a lot of my hard times. I I would just sit and listen and listen and listen to them and Taking Back Sunday and Senses Fail and Seosin and all those bands. I mean, I even have the Taste of Ink tattooed on me because that was the song. And even now I listen to it and it just puts me in a better place. You know, you can take music and kind of work it into your life and make it make sense to you at the time. And even now it's like, you know, it makes sense to me even listen to the music now. So that really got me through my adolescence. And then, you know, even my early adulthood, I, you know, me and Chris met and our relationship, to be honest, has not been perfect. Um, even very much in the beginning, it wasn't, we were very off and on, you know, and I'm not going to get into specifics about that, but it. he's a great husband, terrible boyfriend. Um, I, but we very quickly into our relationship, we got pregnant and we lost that baby. And that was, very hard to deal with. I didn't guess I didn't know how to deal with it because during the time we bounced around like what we would do, you know, we are very open minded and we talked about everything. Like if we kept the baby, if we had an abortion, if we did adoption. So we, I mean, we toyed with everything and thought about it a lot and then that happened. So it was very hard to deal with that because you don't know, like we were thinking about other things and we, so that was hard to deal with. I mean, now it's been, you know, things like that I've dealt with. Um, and then me and my dad's relationship wasn't very good when me and Chris first got married either. He, obviously your daughters get married at 19 and he didn't understand it. And I don't know if I would, if Landon or Layla told me they wanted to get married at 19 either. Um, and then there was a period where me and Chris were separated when we were 21 and we were going to get divorced. And that was really hard because he became my whole life for that period of time. Like I got married young. I had all these expectations and now I'm getting divorced at 21 and I moved home and I had to completely change my life. And then things happened. We worked things out and, you know, we both talk about how lucky we are now. And, um, I got pregnant with Landon shortly after we worked things out and um, another, you know, being told by my dad at that time that um, I was throwing my life away and I would never amount to anything. You know, I was in school to be a nurse and now I got pregnant and that 
basically feeling like I was a complete loser. And I used that as complete motivation to continue on, obviously. And I am a nurse. I have a master's degree. Um, I got my bachelor's degree, master's degree. I have two associate degrees. And I really used all that negativity I felt to prove to him that I, I'm going to amount to something. Um, and so every degree I got, it was just like a, yep, here you go. You know? And I always joke that I got a master's degree to have a higher degree than him because he's got a bachelor's degree. Um, but it always felt like my whole life I've tried, you know, I've heard negative things from him and tried to prove him wrong. And, now it doesn't affect me as much as an adult and our relationship is a lot better. We have not talked about things that we have gone through or events with my dad, you know, with him because, you know, he's, I mean, I guess he's one of those people that there's no point in talking about it. Um, so yeah, lots of, you know, you think back and situations I've gone through in my life you know, you would think that I would be on the other side of this podcast talking about how I'm the addict um, because I have a lot of risk factors. You know, I saw addiction in different ways growing up. I experienced significant trauma genetic wise. I should be on the other side of this podcast. And, you know, I think about it a lot. And so I'm going to share some things with people. If you have gone through some hard things in your life or traumas and, you also don't have an addiction, like things that kind of helped me um, to kind of stay away. I, um, when I noticed that my drinking would get worse, um, there was a period where, you know, the things that had happened in my childhood, I hadn't really dealt with, you know, feelings towards my dad, anger towards my dad. Um, there was, like I said, in the previous podcast, I was drinking a lot more and, uh, embarrassing enough, I got naked in a, someone's hot tub, a friend's hot tub, all of us ladies did. And that was a point where Chris was just like, this has got to stop. And he's like, you need to change something. And without question, I started going to therapy. Um, and I think everyone should have a therapist, honestly. And it's hard. I had very negative thoughts about therapists because of the one before who basically said, why are you still here? Um, and then I had a therapist after that who looked like Robin Williams. And, you know, I, he asked, he, they do the question, like, why are you come to therapy? And I talked about, you know, I have issues with my dad and all of these things that have happened. And he goes, well, it sounds like you have an issue with men or have had a lot of issues with men. Do you feel comfortable talking to me? And like, I feel like if you probably wouldn't have pointed that out, it wouldn't have been an issue. But, you know, he did. And so I was like, yeah, maybe we, this is it. Um, and I kind of gave up on therapy. So I went into therapy knowing that there are good therapists out there. At this time, I was working at a um, mental health hospital. So I knew of good ther. There's good therapists out there. So I figured I'd give it a try. And I met a fantastic therapist. She was amazing where I walked in and just said, vomited my life kind of like I am to you guys with a little more specifics. Um and she really guided me. I mean, it was an amazing transformation. I knew I was using alcohol to not feel things that I had felt from my past. Um, because, you know, when you go through things as a child, you can push things down for so long. And I think what really pulled these emotions back out and these negative feelings and this anger and the sadness back out of me is being a mom myself. 
you know, wanting to protect my children from anything that I had gone through. You know, you want your kids to have a better life than you had. And I think the older the kids got, the harder it got for me. Um, wanting to protect them and then being angry about things I had gone through. Um, so I don't want to cry again on this podcast, not this one. Um, so I think that the drinking was my way of coping and it was an everyday, not a lot, but when I would binge, I would binge to the point of blackout, not really doing things that I should be doing, you know, that getting naked in someone's hot tub. Like, so learning so one skill that I used was talking to a therapist and it was very helpful um and you know that's one way I kind of strayed and worked through not developing an addiction and then you know again kids get older I think it got harder the closer Layla's gotten to when I was first um, molested, like seeing her age and knowing I was that young when it happened, like, how can that happen? And I, you know, coping and dealing with what have happened, I don't blame the person that did it. I mean, I don't know what was happening in their life. And I think I do a lot of that where I try to put myself in other people's shoes. Um, but then, yeah, I was having periods where I was, I would drink a little more, you know, we'd have people over, drink a little more, And then I got really into taking care of my body, you know, working out, trying to work out every day. I got, I felt so low about myself, very depressed again, anxious. My self-esteem was garbage. And so, you know, that became another skill I used and it would kind of stray me away from drinking a lot more because I was wanting to you know I can't exercise if I'm under the influence of alcohol so that became my excuse not to drink as much and um then kind of seeing Chris kind of whirl you know him increasing his drinking kind of deterred me from drinking as well and you know knowing what I know as a mandated reporter and a nurse you know you can't have people completely unable to take care of their children Um, so I needed to make sure I was there for the kids and taking care of them. Um, so those are a couple things and music. I mean, music's been a big thing and I guess I don't surround myself a lot with people that use a lot of substances, at least try not to. I mean, we have friends that drink, but not excessive amounts and, um, stuff like that. I have some friends that don't drink at all. Um, so trying to surround yourself with good people is another way I've kind of strayed away from developing an addiction because again I should be one of the people with one based on my risk factors and I'm not but on the other hand I am married to someone so that is in risk factor in itself um what else I guess that's my childhood story um and again I, I guess I haven't really talked openly about those kind, all those kind of things, but it's been in a, you know, a journey and, you know, I think it's going to continue to be a journey and I'm probably going to constantly be, you know, trying to avoid developing an addiction myself by using different skills. And I hope that 
with Chris's journey now and seeing everything that he's gone through that will also kind of help me as well and keep me in a different path. Um, but knowing yourself, I think a big thing is knowing who you are and knowing what can trigger you. And, um, even now, you know, years and years of, you know, I did therapy for a year and, you know, I've been on this health kind of journey for the last year and a half. Um, identifying when I'm starting to go down that track again. But now with Chris being sober, you know, I am also sober. Um, I think what's important and this not might not be for everybody and I'm no expert. Um, but I think it's helpful to have someone else in the home who is sober with you. I don't think I could be supportive and have an, um, a good household with him if I was still drinking as well. I think that would be very hard and to be supportive and knowing myself, knowing that I have these risk factors. And if I am start drinking here by myself while my husband's in recovery, it's not going to be good for either of us. So I think a lot of people want to know that question. I guess no one's really asked us, but if I have been able to, you know, if I plan to stay sober and I've been sober longer actually than Chris has, I quit a couple weeks before everything went down. So I think I'm learning more about myself too. You know, I know don't necessarily get the cravings like Chris does, but also what's interesting is we live right now in a time where <laughs> we can't go anywhere. We're stuck at home, not stuck at home. We're safe at home, but we're here at home and you know, bars aren't open. Our friends aren't getting together. Um, so it's been pretty easy for us, neither, neither of us to drink. And when he was, you know, at the hospital and in treatment, I was taking care of the kids full time and didn't really have any desire. And I guess I don't have cravings like someone who with an addiction has. So I've been able to really kind of work through any of those types of things. Um, kind of on my own. Um, we did get a question. I know I'm going to be early on time, but we did get a question from someone asking what the first few days post-treatment at home was like with Chris. Um, so Chris went into treatment on February 21st. So before all this COVID-19 stuff got really big, um, and so when he was in treatment, it kind of every week something new was coming and it started getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so I was very, very anxious the first few days he was at home, not because I was worried he would relapse or anything like that. I was more concerned about his own mental health and his anxiety and panic attacks because I had been out and about. I had been shopping. I've been to stores. I've done all those things. So I knew what stores looked like. I knew the panic in people's faces. I knew things had changed. I mean, you go into a store now, people, I, we have to stay six feet apart and we're really not supposed to be going to stores unless for essentials. But you know, like people aren't this, people still have Minnesota nice, but it's not the same. Like it feels very different being in stores. And I think I was most anxious about that, what it would be like for him to return, like go to a store for the first time. And cause being in treatment, he was kind of sheltered from all this while I was out in the real world experience it. And I didn't talk to him a whole lot about it. He knew, I mean, he knew about it from the news and all that as well, but I didn't want to stress him out even more, you know, after treatment. Um, so I remember picking him up and being like, all right, I'm glad you're out. 
I'm going to be real with you. Like things are scary out here. You know, this toilet paper thing is a real thing. I've gone to the store. There's no toilet paper. Um, but him being at home was amazing. Like you could tell the anxiety and stress was off of all of us. Even the kids, like the kids felt good. It was weird because Chris had been gone for so long that me and Layla was sleeping in bed with me. And so she had to get used to sleeping back in her own bed and, um, you know, getting into a different routine when he was in treatment, it was like, they go to bed at a certain time, they take their medication at a certain time, they get up at a certain time, they have things throughout the day. So trying to figure out what, what our new normal is going to look like. And I'm going to be honest with you, weeks out of him being on, we don't even have a schedule down or what our new normal is because of everything that's going on. But, um, the first few days post-treatment were, was amazing. Just having him here and not having to talk on the phone once a day or, you know, and having him be here to, be with the kids, the kids, you know, they missed him. I'm not the fun parent. I am the parent who's like, you get your homework done, you clean, you do this and that. And dad, you know, Chris is the fun parent and he is the guy that's there to bring light to the room. And I think the kids really needed that. And I tried to be that, but I'm also, I'm just not (laughs) that kind of mom. Um, so it was amazing was I worried? And it's crazy. I think about if I was worried about relapse or anything and I haven't been, I haven't been stressed about it because Chris, I can see him as a different person now. He's very determined and focused and happy. And so I, I'm not worried about that. Um, so those first few days, I wasn't worried about that. I was just wanted him to feel comfortable again, being at home and being able to talk about his you know, if he's having cravings, just be open about it. Um, encouraged whatever I could do, you know, if he needed to do online meetings, anything like that. Um, but yeah, getting kind of into a routine was different, trying to figure that out. And also having another adult back in my space, you know, I'm a very clean person and having that other person here all the time. It was again, trying to figure out how to be a family unit again. Um, cause we got used to mom being at home or the kids would be at grandma and grandpa's and now we're all home again. Kids aren't in school, you know, and we, I guess waiting for dad to go back to work or Chris to go, sorry, I call him dad, but Chris to go back to work, um, was different, but, um, and I guess you get used to not having to travel and visit that person. I could visit with Chris all the time and I probably annoyed him and, but I wanted to be in his space all the time because we really missed that and missed having him around. And the kids were so excited for him to be home. Like they just, it was amazing just having him here. And still to this day, like thinking about, you know, we're now we're weeks out of him getting out of treatment and him being here is just such a, you know, stress reliever and, being able to be a family unit again, you know? Um, but yeah, I guess that's the way to answer that question. First few days were amazing. He was home. We could smell him. We could touch him. We could be around him. It was great. Um, but yeah, I guess that's all I have to say on my part. And again, Chris's journey will be different than mine and it'll be interesting to see things that he's gone through to kind of um lead him in the journey of addiction and how I kind of 
could have been going that route and I didn't. Um, and I think we're all very different people and we cope and deal with things very differently. And I hope somebody gets that out of this podcast. Maybe someone will hear something and see themselves in one of us or both of us or parts of us. Um, but just know, um, that you're not alone. You know, we've, Chris and I have both gone through things and different things and that's who, why we are who we are now. And I hope this journey that we've gone through and we talk about in the next, you know, throughout this series is helpful to somebody out there. Um, but that is all I have. Hi, my name's Chris. I'm an addict, alcoholic, alcoholic, addict, however you want to put that. Um, today I want to uh, talk about an event that while I was in treatment, I think it was something that I'd known was not necessarily normal uh, when I was, when it had happened when I was growing up, but it also didn't feel like the, that big of an event, um, that it, it turned out to be, um, that I learned when I was in treatment. And so, uh, last episode I talked about how my brothers had found this, uh, or had made this fort and and put a bunch of nudie mags in it. And that sounds like fairly like innocent enough as it is, um, when I was six years old, Um, but something happened shortly after that, that turned it into something more. And, um, through talking with a couple therapists, um, or psychiatrists or psychologists, however you want to say it, um, which is that, um, another kid at the time, um, had brought myself and his cousin who was female to the fort to look at the magazines. And his cousin was a year older than him, uh, who was a girl. And I stood off in the corner as him and his cousin kind of used the magazines as like a playbook and tried uh, having sex. Like, from what I can remember, um, she was laying down and he was on top of her and thrusting and uh, looking over at at the magazine on the floor kind of making sure that he was doing it right, I guess. And as weird as it sounds, all I rem- the other thing that I remember is um, urinating like a ton while this was going on. And I didn't leave. I stayed there and watched. And when I... You know, when my my folks eventually found out about the magazines, they they didn't know about that thing. 
um, until treatment. And I don't even know if my mom knows. I, I know that my dad knows, but that's the extent of it, I, I think. And uh, so when when they made me go to the bishop and do like the whole repent thing or admission of sin or whatever, um, I logged in my mind that, um, oh, I have to hide th- like things that make me feel differently or I, I don't know if feel good was like what was happening. Cause there was so much shame. The shame was equal to the amount of like feeling good. I think at that age, um, which was mostly just that I think I, I knew that I was getting away with an adult thing at a young age, I think was all I comprehended about it. That was kind of how I lived my life for a very long time. Um, growing up part of these anxiety attacks and panic attacks that I would have, um, were, uh, a result of like doing something that I know I shouldn't have. And they would, they could be dumb things. Like I would pretend to smoke cigars in the woods when I was like nine. And that was just, um, brown paper bags that I would roll up and pretend that they were cigars. But anything, you know, playing with friends that I wasn't supposed to play with, whatever it was, eating, you know, snacks that I shouldn't be, it didn't really matter what it was. I, because of what happened before, thought that if it was something I enjoyed and something, or that I, or let me try that again. If there was something that I enjoyed and wasn't sure what other people would think about it, then I wouldn't tell anyone and it would like weigh on me because I was like, should I be ashamed of whatever it is that I'm enjoying? Um, and the whole like sexuality thing being introduced so young, um, just... It, it was this back and forth of wanting, I I, I don't know if w- womanizing is the right term because I don't know the actual definition or meaning of womanizing, but it, just wanting girls at a very young age and wanting them in a f- like feverish fashion, I think. Um and when I would get girlfriends, I would almost always cheat on them, which is absolutely horrible. Um, and it turned into a pattern of, of course you're going to fuck it up. Of course you're going to feel ashamed about this thing. And man, there was a lot of like, I would make out with a girl and feel depressed, I would, um, you know, do other physical things and immediately feel depressed. I, I, um, before I actually had sex, I, we, I would do things to climax with a, a, a girl 
And then sometimes I would like shake and have an anxiety attack immediately afterwards. Um, and it was, and even though it made me feel so horrible, um, I would sleep it off and the next day be right back to feeling like I had to, I wanted some type of either emotional connection or physical connection. And, um, that I now know is, um, is an addictive trait and that just kept carrying on. So, um, it's only within the last, I don't know, five years that I've grown to not be ashamed of myself in, in certain ways. But it still was obviously bad enough to where um, I had to, to drink a bunch and and, um, and use in, in weird ways, you know? Um, I would, yeah, I would... Ah, God, this sucks. <laughs> um... I, w I would then, on top of, like, all of those things, right, um, I would, all of those bad, or what I perceived to be bad things, um, go to people, and because uh, I was a part of a very religious family and still held the belief that, you know, you, you do have to repent for these certain things, otherwise you're, you're fucked. So not only was I ashamed on a, the physical plane, but I was terrified of what would happen to me if I didn't get better in the afterlife. Um, so it was just this very tumultuous pattern that just kept repeating itself. And, um, you, man, I would start to use, like, you don't realize your addictive behavior until you're so truly sober and looking back on things. So like I remember sniffing markers, sniffing glue, taking more pills than I need to like all of these things that I just chalked up to like <clears throat> random things that you do when you're young. I don't, I don't know. And, um, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know if, I wasn't meeting like I'm, I'm trying not to like skip ahead, but like something that I'm going to talk about a lot <clears throat> in this, uh, in this series is sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> something that I'm going to talk about a lot in this series is the midbrain and dopamine and uh, how substance use messes up your your dopamine levels and kind of your survival instincts. So when I was young, when that first thing happened, because there's there's also your your mind um, can get excited at the the hunt aspect of things so 
when I was in treatment, there were people that said that they were addicted to the lifestyle of selling drugs just as much, if not more than uh, using. So for me, um, like porn was this thing that not only did I feel like I had to have it, had all of this shame attached to it and darkness and yuck bullshit. Um, but the hunting for it became like just as addictive as the, the thing. And there, I would, there would be situations where I'm looking for it through trash, literal trash sifting through it for hours. Um, to try and find some like before internet like was really available or just porn was as accessible on the internet, I guess you could say. Um, it, it was crazy, man. So my, that initial thing, the, the dopamine level got fucked up. Right. And so what happens is your dopamine goes up high and your midbrain, which is a part of your brain, logs that information and says, okay, this is a good thing and we need to remember how to find it. And so in addiction, your midbrain is searching for that dopamine level and will make you think thoughts on, or it will make you try to problem solve to get that thing, which will raise your dopamine level. It doesn't care what happens afterwards because it's a subconscious thing. Again, it's a part of your survival skills. It's a part of your survival instincts, that section of the brain. Um, so I would, yeah, I would do all of these things to try and, to try and find porn initially to try and get into relationships to try and have a girlfriend all of these things um and and then once substances were introduced the same thing and i it would almost almost get me in trouble a lot so i'd be right on the verge of trouble so then there was that my heart rate would go way up um at almost getting caught and um I think my my brain was logging that event too on top of that. So it furthered that whole hunt, the thrill of that hunt, and then the thrill of almost like almost getting caught and then the thrill of getting away with it. Um I would I would sneak out of the house. I got pretty good at sneaking out of the house. <clears throat> I biked uh, three miles to a girl's house one time at two in the morning, or I biked five miles at two in the morning to go and have sex with somebody and then biked back to my house. Um, that's just how fucked up things were. And again, I didn't realize that those were fucked up things until till later um so when it came to um 
Yeah. To, sorry, I know I'm jumping all over the place. I might have to edit a little more. Um, the reason I'm kind of jumping around and why this is kind of tough to, to think about is because I'm still learning this stuff as, as we're going along. This, uh, this pattern of behavior, to sum it up, started when I was six. And most, so most people aren't introduced to that intense of activities or material until later on in life. And because it was introduced to me young, that set me up to be like predisposed or at higher risk for addiction on top of genetically having severe alcoholism on both sides of my family. I, I didn't know that it was going to be so much harder for me, um, later on in life and that things would be stored in the way that they would. Um, because there would be times when I would drink before it, it got to be a real problem where very similar things would happen. I would like be just sobbing out of nowhere and feeling awful about myself and then drinking more and like almost telling myself that I was a piece of shit. Of course you should drink more. Like, I don't know. It's weird. Um, to think about now because now I know that it, your, your subconscious doesn't care about how you feel. It thinks that those substances are somehow helping you survive because it activates that mechanism to introduce dopamine into your system, which is crazy. It's fucking insane that you can be present, but there's something inside of you that has zero, zero, the way that I've, I've described it to somebody, uh, a friend of mine is, um, like a Venus flytrap has no conscious mechanism. Like it doesn't see a fly buzzing around. It doesn't like smell. It doesn't know uh, what it's doing. All it knows is that <clears throat> if something touches these certain sensors on the plant, it's just going to close up around it. And it just, it just thinks that something hit it. It's time to close up and then we'll ingest it. That's basically what happens to your midbrain. Your midbrain says, I don't care what the thing is, but we need something and we need it to touch us um, or we're going to die. So anytime, you know, that, that sense is activated, it stores that, that memory and, and thinks that you have to have it or you're going to die. If it gets too bad, I should say. Um, so yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that there's a part of you that has, you know, that, that, that basically 
tricks you into becoming an addict has the potential to, to trick you into becoming an addict. Like think because it'd be funny to day drink right now. It'd be funny to, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be awesome to go drink at a movie theater to go drink at a family function to go like all of these, man, just all of these things. Wouldn't it be awesome if all, all of those things that I'm saying is were ways that my midbrain was actually just, it figured out that if we can trick Chris into thinking that it'll be a good time, then he'll do it. And that's what it would do, what I would do. It would trick me into thinking that I needed this thing to, to deal with things, to deal with pain, to have fun. To, it was the, like, cure-all. And, and it would do it, yeah. And the crazier part is that you think that you're thinking it. Technically you are, but it's subconscious. It's deeper than you. So I wanted to talk about that today as to how that train started when I was six years old. And, uh, it's, I, I hate, like, I don't, I don't want them to feel like excuses because really they're not excuses, they're answers as to why I felt so ashamed and why I felt like I wasn't good enough and why I felt like I had to have something to make me feel better. And yeah, that's just a, a crazy thing going on in my head. <laughs> so I, I, I still get scatterbrained and I apologize. Um, I'll try to edit this so it doesn't sound so, so crazy. Um, so what I do now, like when I have cravings now, I can separate myself from that thing. It looks like an external thing. It, it, it's almost like, um, I'm allergic to cats, like very allergic to cats and bunnies and things like that. And so it feels like that. Like I see a cat and I go, Oh, if I go and play with that thing, I'm going to have an allergic reaction. It's actually a solid metaphor for <laughs> what addiction is because some people call it an, an allergic, uh, disease. Um, but that's what it looks like now when I, it, it feels like I know something is tricking me in, and that midbrain has what it thinks to be the best of intentions, but it actually destroys everything around me. Um, I hope that I can continue to look at it that way. Um, because you can get complacent in recovery. Um, and, and that can make things seem like everything's fine. And then the next thing you know, you're relapsing 
and you can kind of relapse before even using. Um, there's people that talk about it in a in a way that you're just unaware and you forget that you're an addict. And so you're putting yourself in situations and developing patterns that are going to lead you to use. So there's like a, a pre-relapse, I guess you could say, which is uh, scary. Yeah, and I, I, I don't want to end up there. Um, I'm going to answer, uh, we had a question today, which was, uh, what were the first few days like, uh, post treatment? And, uh, it, it was insane when I was at treatment. Um, I'll talk about that real quick. Um, the morning that, Okay, let me backtrack. So the week that I'm about to go home, um, I was due to go home on that Friday, and we woke up Wednesday morning, and we had to get up at 6.30 in the morning, and then we had uh, like meditation and all these things. There's like, there's morning meditation, there's a group, and there's lecture. And we had just come back from lecture and all of the counselors had for our unit had kind of like stormed in through our, um, post lecture discussion that we're supposed to have. And they just dropped the bomb on us that there, they were not going to allow any visitors to come because the coronavirus had started to get really bad and they were not able to like they they were not comfortable with trying to monitor people coming in and trying to keep people safe um they were also very unsure as to what else was going to be changing and it was you know caused a lot of panic in a lot of people um so myself and three other individuals ended up leaving three of us left that day and then the next one uh, left uh, the next day. So four people uh, were like, we're going to bounce. And luckily for me, like I was a, only a couple days out. Not, the same case for another guy. Um, the other dude still had a week that he should have been there longer. But um, And then the other guy only had a couple days. But, you know, so we, so as soon as that happened... Kim getting there, like everything was just panic mode as far as like, um, every, yeah, everything was just kind of panic mode because of what was going on around. Like the, the coronavirus was just spreading like crazy. No, nobody's jobs had been shut down quite yet. Um, but they were on the verge of, of it happening. My work had even talked about having us work from home. Um, but they were unsure as to whether they'd have that capability or not. And then boom, the, <laughs> that next week I couldn't even get into work because I couldn't get into a doctor's appointment because we, you weren't supposed to go into clinics and facilities and stuff. 
Um, so they were trying to do video visits and they had the capability, but they hadn't used it before. So it, it, it took two days to get a doctor's note and of, of contact, like of communicating. I mean, communicating with my doctor, communicating with nurses, two days of communication to get one note that would say, okay, you can go to work. And I went to work for one day and then boom, the next day I was at home or working from home. So the, the couple of days after getting back from treatment, it was nice. It was great to be at home with my family, but everything was just being flipped on its head. Um, and Kim works at a hospital, um, which is the front line. It's so scary. Um, you know, not knowing what's going to happen. And it's, I joke, well, myself and a couple other guys joke that like, it's a good time to be in recovery because so many of the places that you would usually go to drink, you can't go to right now. And yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's ironic to all of these things, but that was, that was the first few days home for sure. It was nice, but absolutely insane because the world was completely changing. All right. Um, and, uh, now I've got this week's letter. Um, if this is your first time listening, um, I explained in the, in the last episode that I'll be reading a letter from a family member or friend. Um, and I, I learned this when I was in treatment, this individual, um, had a difficulty or a difficult time remembering, uh, kind of things that had happened while he was in addiction in active addiction. And so he had emailed his family and said, I'd like each one of you to write me back with how my addiction affected you negatively in one way. And I thought that was an insanely brave thing to do. And I, I chose to adapt it in my own life. Um, and I am going to be reading that once, once an episode for you guys and for me, I guess. Uh, Chris, of course your drinking negatively impacted me, but probably not in the way you might think. I believe alcohol helped create separation between us. Think about any time that you wanted to get with friends to drink. I have obviously was not at the top of your list of people to hang out with in that scenario. And when alcohol became central in your leisure time, that kind of excluded me from getting a call asking if I wanted to get together to hang out. Now I know that's a two-way street, uh, but I'm a hermit and I don't ask people to come over because then I'd have to clean my house. But my point is alcohol acted as a wedge. It started prying at the cracks slowly, but then quickly divided us. I want you to know, though, that I feel terrible for allowing us to become driven apart without making a stronger effort to be not only a good brother, but a real friend to you. Someone you feel you can call for any reason. I respect you very much and have always been very proud of the person that you are. A values-driven person willing to stand up for what you believe is right. Even if that meant defending rollerblading. I say that somewhat facetiously. <laughs> and even though I tease about it, I've always admired that you never let any amount of teasing deter you from, from doing it. 
Uh, it, it truly represents what st- strong character you have to go against the grain in pursuit of what is important to you. That is a rare and valuable trait. I've seen you demonstrate this in many much more important ways besides rollerblading. That's just the earliest example I can think of and uh, shows that you've been that person for as long as I can remember. I'm here for you on this journey to do the next right thing. I might even go as far as getting a matching tattoo with you to prove it. Love you. Uh, that's for my brother. Um, I like that he added the do the next right thing saying, because that's something that we learned in treatment that um, things can be um, very unfamiliar when you're in treatment uh, for a lot of people, especially if you haven't been to like college, I think is the only example I can think of. Um, it's yeah, very, very strange. Um, and unfamiliar. And so a saying that they have is all you can do is the next right thing. So if you have that mentality going into life or going into each day, I should say, um, all you can do is the next right thing. It generally leads you on the best path and the, the safest, safest path as well. Um, I, I guess I didn't think about, uh, drinking being the reason that I didn't hang out with that particular, that specific brother, but it kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, it's it's a that's a weird one. I, I I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it does make sense actually, because um, I think I would feel judge judged and judgment from him if he knew I was drinking. Um, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that, but I I hope that I can begin to make amends with that individual by spending more time with them and their family and uh and not letting you know shit like that get in the way of maintaining a connection that family should have. Um that is something that's important to me and something that I definitely stopped giving a shit about. Um, kind of like at the peak of my addiction. I, I really started to not give a fuck about um, having connections with my family. I, I made excuses all the time about it. So, yeah, hope I can I can continue to do the next right thing and do better. Um, each episode we're going to try and have people or have, if you have a question for us, sorry, if you have a question for us, uh, and want, want us to answer it during the, the show, um, you can email duck, duck, gray, duke, um, at gmail.com and we won't say your name. Uh, we'll just read it like we did the, the this question, Um, and it can be about anything, addiction, family, whatever. 
Um, as always, um, thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. <laughs> Share it if you think it helps. Um, it's something that I hope helps Kim and I, and I we hope that will help others as well. Um, and with that, I will pass.